can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at the theme of living the resurrection life tonight. There's a popular book I really like called Living the Cross-Centered Life, but we're talking tonight about living the resurrection life. And our text comes from Colossians 2 verse 20 going through to 3 verse 4. And we remember that those chapter divisions are a man-made addition uh, only a couple hundred years ago. So it is very fine to have a unit that goes right through a chapter division. Okay, Colossians 2 verse 20. This is God's holy word. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Have you ever heard someone, perhaps you've used a phrase like this yourself, say something like, oh, when I did that, I just felt so alive. Or they're in a moment like, oh, this is life to me. Or, oh, this is what it's like to live. Phrases like that acknowledge that there is more to our life than just the breath and livingness, that there is a way of being in this world that is truly living. There's a deeper life, a fuller life. The, the human heart is constantly looking for this, and people try to achieve this deeper sense of true living in varieties of ways. There's many self-help books, personal development courses, life coaches you can get that help you try to find uh, where's this true livingness in my life. And why is this the case? Why are people looking for this life? And why is it so hard to find? It's because due to our nature being born in a fallen, sin-cursed world is that the things that were made to truly satisfy our heart, true spiritual life, is now alien to us. And this affects our minds, our hearts, and our wills. The human mind naturally does not trust God. The human heart naturally does not love God. The human will naturally does not want to obey God. And God himself is life and is the source of life. And when we are turned away from him, we lack that true livingness, even in our physical life in this world. But in Christ, there is a way to life. And the way to life with God through Jesus comes by way of what we call union with Christ, being united with Christ. This is a fundamental Christian doctrine. It's the doctrine by which all the blessings of salvation come to us. They all come by way of union with Christ. And that is union with Christ both in his death but also his resurrection. When we're talking about union with Christ, what are we talking about? We're not talking about some physical thing, like we, like we have some connection we could dissect. 
No, this is a relational oneness. It's, it's a connection with God brought about through faith in Christ where the believer receives all that Christ has earned by his perfect life and atoning death and powerful resurrection. So it's where Christ becomes ours and we become his through faith, united in the bonds of enduring faithful love. It's similar to a marriage. Uh, in a marriage, the two are said to become one. They, they are united together in a covenant. And what's amazing about this oneness is that it brings a union of what the one has to the other. The husband and wife come to share in each other's property. They come to share in each other's families. And so it is with us in Christ. You see, when we are united to Christ in this covenantal bond, all Christ's attainments we get a share in. His righteousness becomes credited as our righteousness. His atoning sacrifice stands for our forgiveness. His Father becomes our Father. His Holy Spirit becomes our helper. And His resurrection life becomes our life. And so as we look at union with Christ and His death and resurrection, what we're looking at is the fact that we are freed from sin and filled with the Holy Spirit to walk in a new way of life in true, spiritual, and eternal life. So let's look at each of these in turn. Let's first consider union with Christ and his death. Take a look at Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what Paul says being alive to this world is, okay? Alive just to the things of this world. He says it's an, an attempt at continual self-improvement through self-made religion self-made religion. And you see, at this church in Colossae, there were two main types of self-made made, self -made religion vying for the hearts and minds of the people. The first was a Jewish legalism, where they said, if you just keep these regulations, keep these cleanliness laws, keep these food laws, that will be the way to be a true Christian. That'll be the way to have life. That was one stream a legalistic stream, but there was also a stream of mystic asceticism where people said, no, no, the way to life is through spiritual experience, through rejecting all the good things of earth and finding rapturous ecstasy in spiritual, mystical experiences, in worshiping angels. Two false paths to life. The one says you attain life by keeping the rules. The other says you attain life by experiencing the spiritual. And these powers, Paul actually calls them the elemental spirits of the world. These forms of self-improvement through self-religion are still alive in our day. Uh, we can think of in the world these as achievers and experiencers. People usually seek life in one of these directions. Some people say, if you do the things right, you work hard in school, you get a good job, you be a good citizen, ah, then you will be successful and know what it is to really live well. 
But the other says, no, it's in the experiences. It's in living for the moment, being yourself, enjoying the finer things, the pleasures of this world. That's life. Achievers, experiencers, these are false gods. These are false ways of trying to find life, and they never actually bring it. In the church, we, we almost see this in, in the difference between, say, conservatives and progressives. Conservatives who say, if you just keep all the rules, live life this way, follow this, don't do that, then you will be happy. Or progressives that say, no, if you find your common humanity and the experience of just mystical communion with God, that's where you'll find life. Both are wrong. Why are they both wrong? Because... Neither of these change the heart. Paul says, none of this is of any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Neither achievement or experiences stop the indulgence of the flesh. And it's our flesh, our sinful flesh, that wages war against our spirit and keeps us from experiencing the flourishing life that God has for us. Achievements, experiences, they don't produce spiritual life, but they leave us barren. Um, if we think of uh, in the winter, the, the trees are lifeless. They are dormant. They're just lying. They're not bearing any fruit. And as much uh, fertilizer as you add to them, as much as you water them, they're not going to awaken to fruitfulness. Though they, there's good things, right? We, we want to keep God's laws. We want to know God and experience him. But they won't make the tree grow. Only the rising, warming sun can bring that life. And so these things of self-made religion, these external works or even our own experiences, they don't awaken us and bring life. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus brings the life that we need. And I myself, even being a Christian, being a young person, I was constantly trying to follow one of these two paths. I wanted to be the best Christian so that I could just be the best. And I went through a phase where I wanted to be the most spiritual. And I figured if I was as spiritual as possible, then I would be the best Christian. And then I thought, no, if I just be as strict as possible and refrain from anything, um, then I will be the best Christian. But in both phases of life, I kept finding my flesh trips me up again and again. My spirituality, my legalistic rigor, none of them subdued the lustful inclinations of my heart, my selfishness. And when you follow these paths, you come to the end of yourself again and again. And if you or I are to escape this endless winter of spiritual death, we must rely fully on the work of Christ. And that's how you die to this life-seeking through self-improvement. You die to this life in the world through union with Christ, trusting him in his death. Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, that as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Because Jesus is the only sure foundation. The way of life is the way of faith in Christ. And it says receiving him. And faith, the catechism says, is receiving and resting upon Christ for salvation, for life. That's what salvation is, true eternal life. Because that's not found in your works, in your best behavior, in your highest experiences. It's only found when we let go of trying to attain life ourselves and sit back and find life in Christ. We find him to be our life. 
We receive and rest upon him. Uh, the youth group last year, we were at the YMCA and they had a rock climbing wall. And if you're good at climbing up the wall, you climb all the way up without having to rely on the rope at all. You're hanging on, but then when you get to the top, they say, no, you can't climb down on your own. You actually have to now let go, trust the rope, and trust the belayer to get you down. And that's what resting upon Christ is. It's letting go of trying to climb yourself, resting your hope fully that if Christ doesn't stand for me, if Christ doesn't intercede for me, I will fall. I will be lost. All my weight is on Jesus. Receiving Christ. And when we receive Christ and are united with him in his death, what that means is that we die to life-seeking through self-improvement, through our achievements, our experiences, and we trust that this true life is going to be found in Christ alone, united with him in his death. But more than that, faith brings us union with Christ in his resurrection. Take a look at 3 verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised with Christ, Paul says. You have been raised with Christ. He speaks of this raising with Christ a few other places in chapter 2. He speaks of it as being alive together with him, God having forgiven us all our trespasses. He speaks of it as being filled with him and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That is, through faith, the believer experiences a spiritual resurrection, a transition from death to life. And this union with Christ's resurrection means two things for the believer. First, it means a clean slate. It says, God having forgiven us all our trespasses. That is, the debt of sin, filling your ledger, all the debts of sin that stand against you, wiped away, cleansed, forgiven, paid in full through Jesus. That's what the resurrection means for us. But secondly, it means a new power. It says the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raises us to spiritual life. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, as the Spirit raises our dead hearts to life, we call that the work of regeneration, of giving new life, regenerating from the inside. And regeneration goes to every part of us. And it means that now our mind trusts God, our heart loves God, our will desires to obey God. It works fully in us. That is, through Christ's resurrection, we receive forgiveness and we receive this fullness. And now you might be thinking, but how do those tie particularly to the resurrection? Well, here's how. How does Christ's resurrection provide forgiveness? We actually heard this this morning, that if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And in Romans 4.25, he says that Christ was raised for your justification. That's saying Christ's resurrection was the proof that the debt was paid in full. It was the stamp of approval from the Lord to say that sins had indeed been paid for. But secondly, Christ's resurrection meant the sending of the Spirit. Christ said, if I go, then the Spirit will come to you. This life-giving Spirit that empowers us. Christ ascended and gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And so the resurrection of Christ is so necessary because not your best works, not your greatest experiences could cleanse you of this sin or merit you forgiveness. Not your best achievements could give you new spiritual life. And so to be united with Christ in his resurrection is necessary for the forgiveness we need and for the filling we need. The filling we need. But for what? Why be forgiven? Why be filled? The tree isn't awakened out of its wintry slumber merely to enjoy the light of the sun, but to live into what it truly means to be a tree, to flourish, to bear leaves and flowers and to bud and to bear fruit. And in the same way, we are called to live out of, to live into this new spiritual life that we've received. In Romans 6, 4, Paul says that we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why we've been raised up, that we might walk in newness of life. And so what does this newness of life mean? How do we begin walking out living this resurrection life. Take a look again at verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is, we are called as new life beings to now live pursuing the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 1 says that we are to seek the things above, the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When it's saying here, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where is he seated? He's seated on his throne. He is reigning as king from this place. And so when we're seeking those things above, the things of the throne sitting Christ, that means we're seeking the things of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And I, and I love how Paul defines the kingdom of heaven in Romans 14.17. He says that it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the things of the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And these are the things that we are to seek. And this Greek word for seek means to be seeking by inquiring or investigating. Boys and girls, you know those detectives, they take their magnifying glass and they're investigating. We're to be seeking out the things of the kingdom of God. And there's a big difference in our lives when we are, we know when we're seeking the kingdom versus not. It's the same as when you go in the store and you're seeking something out versus just browsing, right? The store clerk comes up to you and says, can I help you? And say, you say, no, I'm just browsing. And if it's true that you are just browsing, what that means is you're just wandering around, looking, hoping for whatever will catch your eye. And then maybe you buy that thing. And a lot of people live life in this world just whatever is the good-looking thing that's present to me right now. That's what'll draw me. But to be seeking is to have your list, and you go into the store, and you're on a mission. You're like, I'm going to get the cream, the milk, the ham, the eggs, all the things. Things that you might have made a delicious Easter dinner with. But there's an intentional pursuit. There's no dilly-dallying. There's no time for side trips. You're on a mission. And we are to live seeking the things of the kingdom of God. 
Righteousness, peace, and joy. That's a good rubric to use, right? Just think about this. We are seeking righteousness to be made right with God ourselves. But then also, we want to see other people be made right with God. And we want to see people be made right with each other. There's a lot of division and hurt in this world, and we want to see what's wrong in this world made right. We want to seek righteousness. We want to seek peace, to be at peace with God ourselves, but also to see other people come to have peace with God, and then to see people have peace with one another. We want to seek joy, to have joy in God ourselves, to see other people have joy in God, and to see people have joy in the fellowship of community and in the good things of this world. Seeking the things above. The things of the kingdom of heaven is not just visions of of the spiritual reality, but all those good things that flow from the throne of God that we get to enjoy and encourage now. We're to seek the things above. But also, verse 2, to set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. This idea of setting your mind is the idea of fixing your intention, fixing your attention, of having an intent focus. And where you direct your attention really matters. Uh, uh, Marketers these days are saying that they no longer consider time people's most valuable resource, but their attention. Everyone is fighting to gain your attention, just, just to set your mind somewhere for a moment. But we're called to be people who, in those free moments, when you're walking to the water cooler, when you're getting up for a snack, that the natural place your mind quickly goes to are these things of heaven, these things of the kingdom of God. Our, our attention is like, like a radio tuner, right? You dial it in to a particular station that you want to listen to. And we might ask ourselves, as everyone has a favorite station, what station is your attention attuned to most? Is it an earthly one or a heavenly one? Right? If someone was going to just randomly pop into your thoughts, where would they be? You know, kind of like um, that scary moment when someone's coming with you into your car and you turn on the ignition and you're not sure what's going to be playing on the radio. If it's a type of station that'll expose you as one of those people, or maybe you're with someone else, you're like, oh, they listen to that sort of music or that sort of talk radio. If someone wants to jump into your mind, what is playing? Where are those thoughts? How much of your attention is given to the contemplation of God? the truths of his word, the service of his kingdom, the pursuit of holiness, the practice of mercy, the love of your neighbor. The resurrected mind is meant to be set on the things above, not on the things of earth. And why does this matter? Why do we need to set our minds and affections and seek these above things? It's because that's what the resurrection life is for. That's what God wants us to do with it. That's how he wants us to live in light of it. We're meant to live on a higher plane than just these things of the world. Just like how a tadpole, when it grows legs, right? Boys and girls, you know how a tadpole, it grows legs and becomes a frog. And the frog, because it has this new ability, it can leave the tiny mud puddle and explore a big new world on land. And as Christians, when we've been given this resurrected life, we're called to leave the lesser things and pursue these deeper, more meaningful realities. Our nature is meant for higher things. 
And that's why right after this text, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. You've got to kill that earthly part and um, awake that heavenly part because that's the part you're meant to live for. When we live for fleshly things, we're living below our high and heavenly calling. We're not living up to this gift of resurrection life that we've been given. Uh, if, if you were getting to know me and I was to tell you that you were just asking me general questions, if you asked me what my favorite food was and I said it was Peeps, or you asked me my favorite TV show and I said it was Paw Patrol, and you asked me my favorite activity and I said it was playing with Duplo, you would be, something's wrong here. Bro, you're 31. Why are you still living like a child? Why have you not grown and developed into adult tastes? In the same way, when we are flirting around with these things of the sensual pleasures and these things of life, it's as if God is looking at you and saying, what are you doing? Do you not know what sort of nature I've given you? How ennobled you are? That you have the spirit of God dwelling within you? Why are you playing around with these little things of lusts and greed and pleasures and successes when you can pursue the things of the spirit? Because you've been given a new noble nature that's fitted for heavenly things. You've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, to flee those things of status, comfort, pleasure, success, to worship God, to love humanity, to serve the least of these, to raise up a godly seed, to cultivate Christ-likeness. These are the sorts of activities that bring us life that help us live out the life we've been given in Christ. We've been resurrected, and we need to get out of the grave. Imagine if Lazarus stayed in the tomb when Jesus brought him life. He kept the grave clothes on and was like, nah, I'm good. No, Lazarus, Jesus said, come forth. That meant take off those grave clothes. Come out of the tomb and live in the life that you've been given. This is truly living, being alive in Christ. And as beautiful and meaningful as this sort of life with Christ is now, the best is still yet to come. Look at verse 3. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our life in Christ now is nothing compared to what it will be. Our life is hidden in Christ now, like a seed is hidden in the earth. And if you could talk to that seed and tell that little seed, this is the sort of great tree you will be, the seed would be saying, no way. There's no way small me could become such a great tree. And that's our perspective. We know so little of the glory that will be revealed to us on that last day. Our life is like a seed that will die and be reborn in a new world to live a resurrection life, not just with a renewed spirit, but with a resurrected, glorified body, one perfectly fit to enjoy the life that comes from Jesus, those living waters that flow from the throne of grace. That's what's in store for the child of God. The Christian hope is this final, eternal resurrection. And because we can look forward to a new and better world, we don't need to try to suck every piece of pleasure out of this life. This life isn't all there to live. 
isn't all that there is to live for. Moth and rust will destroy so much. Solomon had it all, and he knew it was vain. But because the world will go on in the new creation, that means none of our strivings for good now, none of our works of faith, none of our labors of love will be in vain because God will bring those following us as a reward into the new world. He will reward his faithful servants and continue that work that's been started in making all things new. Christ purchased this resurrection life for us at the cost of his own innocent blood. And he now calls you and I to walk in newness of life, in living and giving ourselves for him, the one who gave himself for us, who died and was raised. And if you think, that's great, but how do I practically do this every day? Read the rest of the chapter. Colossians 3 details many wonderful sins to put off, graces to put on, things to pursue. It talks about family life, singing, worship. Spend time this week meditating on Colossians 3 and find some instructions there of what it might look like for you to live this resurrection life. But as you pursue this obedience, don't forget this foundation, that our righteous standing with God is a gift. These works aren't for our life. Our life is in Christ. But now we get the joy of living the resurrection life, participating in what God is doing in this world. So go live a resurrection life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and gracious that you would resurrect those with dead hearts, with souls and minds that were once turned against you. We thank you for the grace that brings us to your side, that welcomes us into your family, but that doesn't only welcome us, but transforms us. Lord, we ask that we would be what we are, that we would live life according to the spirit that you've given us, to keep in step with the spirit, to walk in the spirit, and to bear spiritual fruit every day as we look to Christ, the author of our faith, the foundation of our life, the giver of the Spirit. Help us walk with fixed attention, with eyes looking heavenward, minds and hearts set on the things above, the things of your kingdom, and that we would find the meaning and purpose of life in glorifying you, serving you, serving your world, and enjoying all that you are to us in Jesus. Amen.